Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the RGS IBG. I'm Laura and in each recording I'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. If you've got questions, ideas for topics or simply want to know more about upcoming podcasts, follow hashtag Ask the Geographer on Twitter for the latest updates. The Weddell Sea Expedition has been exploring the coldest, harshest and most remote location in the world using underwater robots, drones and state-of-the-art technology. The expedition has investigated the ice shells around the Weddell Sea and in particular the Larsen Sea ice shelf from which a giant iceberg broke off in July 2017. The crew of experts, scientists and geographers on board also have another aim, to locate and survey the wreck of Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance, which was trapped and crushed by the ice in 1915. Ahead of this journey, in November 2018, we spoke to one of the leading experts on the expedition, Professor Julian Dowdswell, Director of the Scott Polar Research Institute and Professor of Physical Geography at the University of Cambridge. We discuss glaciers, ice caps and this extraordinary journey that draws to a close soon. So Julian, can you tell me, what does a glaciologist study? Glaciologists the study of ice in all its forms. I study the glacier and ice sheet part of that, where glaciers and ice sheets are formed by the precipitation and then the densification of snow into glacier ice. Other parts of the icy world include sea ice, which is simply the frozen sea surface over vast areas around Antarctica and in the Arctic, and also permafrost, which is permanently frozen ground, and that covers very large areas of the unglaciated uh, parts of uh, the Canadian North and the Russian North in particular. Ice shelves and ice sheets are related to each other dynamically. Ice shelves are fed from ice sheets and they are effectively the floating edge of ice sheets in Antarctica, which is the only place they occur today. Where ice becomes ungrounded from actually sitting on a rock interface, and begins to float. That is called the grounding line or grounding zone. And beyond that, although the, the, the ice is still connected to the parent ice sheet, it becomes afloat and eventually fully buoyant as what we call a floating ice shelf. That ice shelf in Antarctica can, can extend anything from a few tens of kilometres up to, for the Ross and the Ronnie ice shelves, up to 450 kilometres from the grounding zone to what we would see as the ice margin if we were flying over it in an aeroplane or offshore in a ship. The water-filled cavities beneath the floating ice shelf can be hundreds and in a few cases over a thousand metres in, th in thickness and the ice of an ice shelf by the time it reaches the ice edge is between about 200 and 500 metres in thickness. The mass balance of glaciers and ice sheets is colloquially known as their state of health. That is to say, whether an ice sheet or glacier is in equilibrium with the regional climate or in balance with the regional climate is a function of the amount of snow coming into its surface at the top and the amount of mass that is lost either by surface melting and runoff, by the production of icebergs or where we have floating ice shelves beyond the ice sheet itself by basal melting of the ice shelf. So mass is gained through precipitation in the form of snow which densifies into glacier ice and mass is lost 
by those three mechanisms of surface runoff and melting, iceberg production and basal melting of a floating ice shelf. In some high altitude areas, a fourth mechanism of mass loss called sublimation takes place. That is where it's not melting as part of mass loss, but it's a change straight from the solid to the gaseous phase. But this is rather unco uncommon, um, except in very high altitude and very, very dry areas. When an ice shelf like Larsen C breaks away, what are the immediate impacts? The important thing about the breakup of ice shelves and Larsen C, if that happens, may be a future example of that. Larsen A and Larsen B are contemporary examples from the last few decades. What happens is that actually a part of the buttressing effect on the ice inland, which is resting on the Antarctic itself, that ice speeds up because the buttressing or back pressure of the ice shelf has gone. And the ice speeds up and that's one of the really significant things about ice shelf breakup that it seems to be that it is followed by a speed up of the ice in the interior of the ice sheet which of course means an increase in mass loss and therefore an increment, an additional increment to global sea level change. In addition of course there are all sorts of interesting things in terms of oceanography and biology to do with ice shelf breakup. It means that there's a new area of the sea floor that can be examined by ships going over it, which was formerly covered by an extensive ice shelf, and how the biota, the, particularly the benthic or seafloor biota, adjust to that is of great interest to the marine biology community. Why is long-term monitoring of ice shelves in the Weddell Sea so important? Long-term monitoring of ice shelves is important because we want to try and work out in as far as we can for how long they've been stable. Now, monitoring some satellites only goes back about 40, maybe 50 years at the most. There are some early satellites pre the Landsat series which were launched in the early 1970s and it's only really in the last 20 or 25 years that there have been comprehensive satellites which can image actually through clouds. These use synthetic aperture radars. Going back beyond the satellite era is much more difficult. There have been a few early expeditions, those of Scott and Shackleton are examples, where maps were made of certain parts of the Antarctic coast, but the coverage is obviously sparse. And if you want to go back beyond the era of historic exploration, then you actually have to look at the marine geological record, the stratigraphy or layer cake structure of the seafloor sediments. And for that, you take cores through the sediments and you analyse the layer cake structure of the cores, you radiocarbon date the cores, and that can tell you about the past behaviour of ice shelves um, since the last glacial maximum about 15 or 20,000 years ago. Can you tell me how this affects global sea level? The impacts of ice shelf collapse on global sea level are indirect, but nonetheless important. And when I say indirect, what I mean is the ice shelf, because it is already afloat, cannot make an increment to global sea level rise because it's already in equilibrium with the ocean waters. But because the back pressure that the ice shelf exerts on the parent ice sheet is then removed, the parent ice sheet flows faster and that is decanting ice to the global ocean from the land. And it's that indirect effect which is key to global sea level change. So what different techniques are used to measure sea ice? Sea ice is usually measured remotely from satellites today. The vast expanse of the Antarctic where 20 million or so kilometres squared is covered by sea ice 
in winter is far too much to survey in any other way really. Now calibration and validation of satellite measurements of sea ice is done from ships and sometimes from aircraft and by people working on the sea ice itself. But the majority of our understanding of sea ice extent, sea ice thickness and sea ice distribution comes from satellite systems operating both at visible bands, which means that clouds will obscure our view when it's cloudy or foggy, and at radar and microwave wavelengths where the satellite sensors can actually effectively see through the clouds and that gives more or less continuous observations dependent on the repeat cycle of the satellites themselves. What does the marine geological record tell us? The marine geological record tells us about the past history of ice sheets and ice shelves dependent on core length and dependent on the rate of sedimentation, we look back over shorter or longer periods. Where organic matter is present within what is predominantly rock fragments in the core material itself, when organic matter is present, we can radiocarbon date different horizons within the cores, and that can give us a record, um, a chronology back 20 or 25,000 years. And as, for example, the grain size changes in the core and as the the way that the sediments are laid down changes in the core those give, give us clues as to the proximity of the ice sheet margin whether an ice shelf is present or not and in some circumstances how close to the grounding line that interface between the ice sheet and the ice sheet itself where that that is located at different times how do you take samples from 3,000 metres below sea level? The way we take samples of the seafloor, whether the water depth is 500 or a few thousand metres, is by taking coring devices, and the simplest of these are called gravity corers. Basically, you've got a one-ton weight um, on top of a drain pipe with a core liner in it. The core liner actually collects the material. And that is lowered by winch on a cable to within about 10 metres of the sea floor, whether the water depth is thousands or hundreds of metres. And then simply the core is released and it just drops onto the sea floor and we hope it goes in near vertically and collects a few metres of sediment. And normally we're talking about between three and six metres of sediment collected by that gravity coring method. There is also an ocean drilling programme drill ship that goes to various areas of the world and can collect cores by a much more sophisticated mechanism. And there we can re return cores hundreds of metres in thickness. That, though, is very difficult to deploy in ice-infested waters. And finally, can you tell me what are the most significant future challenges faced in the Weddell Sea? The most significant challenges in the Weddell Sea are logistical and then scientific. The logistical challenge is simply, can we get the vessel to the sites of particular interest where we think we can extract key environmental parameters, whether they be the ice shelf itself, the icebergs produced from it, or sediment cores which record past history. And the sea ice conditions there are sufficiently difficult that it, even with an ice-breaking research vessel of high specification, it is difficult to move around there. That's one of the reasons, of course, that Shackleton's ship was trapped a hundred years ago or so. But the scientific yield, if we get there, is very high because Larsen A and Larsen B ice shells have shown particular sensitivity to changing environments 
in the last couple of decades. What we want to try and do is see whether Larsen C, which is the fourth biggest ice shelf in Antarctica, is likely to suffer a similar fate in due course. And that, I think, is the key challenge and the key excitement about the Weddell Sea area. The RGS IBG is delighted to be educational partner to this extraordinary expedition. You can access educational resources that support understanding of this incredible journey by visiting www.rgs.org forward slash WSE. For more information and updates on the expedition as it happens, you can visit www.wedlseexpedition.org. Thanks for listening.